welcome back. I am finally back. It's been a while again. I feel like I say that every episode though, right? Um, this time I did have a good excuse though. Uh, so about a month ago, I went to Ireland, went home to visit for a week. Um, it was around St. Patrick's Day. I had a great time. Just basically just hung out with my mom and my little nephew for the whole week. Um, he's a year and a half now and is very entertaining. Um, had a great time and then on the morning of my flight I woke up like super early like 5am and just didn't feel right like I can't even explain it like felt kind of sick but like something was off didn't feel okay I got my um negative covid test the day before um took a couple of ibuprofen went to sleep for a few hours got up for my flight felt great again um drove to the airport all was fine and then right before I was boarding I felt like oh I feel a little off again so I was like oh well it's probably time just take some more medication took some more ibuprofen was okay again got on the plane was there for about an hour and just got a really high fever I was so sick so sick to the point that I actually had to call the cabin crew and let them know and like if you know me at all um I'm uh generally quite uh one of those people that's like oh no even if I'm like being tortured I won't ask anyone for help in case I like bother somebody like I'm one of those people um so that's how you knew I was bad the fact that I was actually asking for help um So I told them about it. They were so good to me. They cleared a back row of seats so that I could lie down. They got me pillows and blankets from business class. They literally said to me, just lie down, try and sleep. Nobody's going to bother you. If you need anything, let us know. Um, And I somehow managed to sleep. The flight was really long. It was like seven hours. Um, Somehow managed to sleep and then... They woke me up right before we were landing and they said that they'd all been checking in on me. Um, One of them even tucked me in at one point. Like they were so, so, so sweet. So just want to give a shout out to them. Um, I flew with Aer Lingus. They're always great anyway. I always only ever fly home with them. Um, But they really, really went like absolutely above and beyond. Like they were so amazing. I can't um, give them enough praise, honestly, because it was really, really scary. I've never been sick on a flight before and I was so sick. Like, it was so scary. Um, And to know that, like, you can't leave, you can't go anywhere, you can't, like, go to bed or whatever it is. Like, can't get fresh air. So it was pretty scary, but they they really, really helped me out. I ended up, I, it's it's been three weeks now. It's been over three weeks, actually, and I'm still quite sick. Um, I only went back to work one day a few days ago and had to not go back again because I felt so bad after um also if I cough um or if you hear the tape pausing it's because I am coughing because I'm coughing quite a lot if I'm speaking too much I also think I just said tape there which is so funny such a 90s thing to say what even is a tape anymore 
Um, so yeah, so that's been my months. Um, that was fun, but not really. Um, I spent most of the time just on the couch watching. I just got into this bizarre like cycle of watching really, you know, those really like cheesy domestic thrillers from like the 80s and 90s, like Hand That Rocks the Cradle, Basic Instinct, Cliffhanger, like all of those. Um, just started re-watching all those. I don't know what got me into that, but it, it just, it got me through it, you know? Um, so yeah, um, the weather's been really great the last few days in New York. Um, so I've been sitting outside reading and trying to like soak up some vitamin D and hope that that sorts me out, makes me better. It wasn't COVID. I'll be glad to say I did test several times and it was all negative. Um, so I think it's just flu. A lot of people seem to have flu right now and like viral infections. So I think I just kind of got, who knows, even a combination of all of that. My health hasn't been the greatest since I had COVID the first time in 2020 anyway. So um, I think it probably just hit me a lot more than it normally would. Um, but yeah, there you go. That's been my time. Um, so today's episode is um, one that's actually, for the first time, I've had to divide it into several parts. Right now, it's in two parts. I'm thinking it may have to be in three parts because it's quite long. Um, I'm working mostly from a book. So um, there's so much like helpful and important information in this book that I don't want to leave anything out just to kind of condense it into a shorter episode. Um, so I'll try and release them at least in quick succession. Um, though right now I'm hoping to do one a week for the next few weeks and then after that I'll go back to monthly episodes and hopefully keep on track with that. Um, once again thank you for the support for all of the streams the ratings all the messages on my socials um, it's so helpful to the show to just get ratings and I you know I'd really appreciate a rating on my platform if you're listening um, any platform you listen on give me a quick little rating give me any rating you want just give me something give me some acknowledgement <laughs> and please share 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 thank you so much On today's episode, I'm going to be telling the story of one of my idols. Um, If you're a regular listener, you will definitely have heard me mentioning her countless times throughout my episodes and how much she changed my life when I first heard her TED talk a few years ago, and that is Miss Leslie Morgan Steiner. So her TED talk was titled why domestic violence victim violence victims don't leave and her answer to that one simple line i didn't know i was being abused completely flipped my life and changed me forever it is the reason i'm sitting here today recording this podcast it's the reason i work as a domestic abuse spokesperson for the allstate foundation it is the reason why i don't ask myself that question anymore When I've spoken with fellow survivors and told them they didn't know that they were being abused, I have seen the way their faces have changed. It is the same thing that happened to me. I always say I had at the time what Oprah calls a light bulb moment. I sat up in my chair, I paused the video and I repeated the line, I didn't know I was being abused countless times. Each time I sounded less incredulous and more and more strong. I even laughed at one point. It was a true revelation to me, yet 
it was something that was seemingly so simple like I will honestly never forget it so here's the story of the woman who changed my life Leslie says at the beginning of her book crazy love you'd never guess my secret I don't look the part if only being well educated and blonde and coming from a good family were enough to defang all of life's demons Leslie was born in Washington, D.C. in 1965. Her mother's father, Sammy, had graduated from Harvard in 1929 and been the vice president at Macy's. So he was wealthy, but he was also an alcoholic and left his wife to support herself. She, too, died of alcoholism, breaking her hip in a drunken fall. Sammy still worked at Macy's up until he died, but this time as a janitor, and he also lived there in the basement. Leslie believes she inherited her addictions from him, she started smoking when she was 12 and would sneak martinis from her parents' party guests. And then she discovered pot. In high school, she describes herself as a, an achievement-obsessed druggie. She craved being numbed out. Her father was a lawyer who would hide out on weekends in his law office downtown while her mother knocked back rum and cokes at their house in Bethesda. He worked late every night, not realising his kids needed him home more than they needed him to provide them with nice things. Leslie would hit the bars with her friends as young as 15. On the night she stayed in, she hid alcohol all around the house. Her mother used to call her names like the Washington whore. It was clear something was wrong in her life. Leslie graduated from Harvard in 1987 and the Wharton School of Business in 1992. While attending Harvard, she went to her first 12-step meeting. She stopped drinking and using drugs cold turkey. She ended up spending most vacations and holidays in her empty dorm as she hated going home to her family who were still drinking heavily. She worked for Seventeen magazine between 1987 and 1990 in New York and she loved it there. She even hated missing a day while sick. While working there, she met Connor one evening on the New York subway. She found herself sitting next to him, elbows touching, and even when the train car emptied, he didn't move away and neither did she. She thought it would be rude. Now, as someone who's lived in New York for 10 years, this is a major no-no in my book. If I saw that the train car emptied out and I was still pushed up against some guy and one of us didn't move, alarm bells, that's get out of there and go to the other side of the train immediately. <laughs> Connor later told her that it meant a lot to him that she hadn't moved away. Um, what? He smiled at her and asked her name. She said he felt instantly safe and familiar, despite knowing it was a bad idea to engage with strange men on the subway. She answered him truthfully and they began small talking. Connor worked at an investment bank. Before he got off at his stop, he told her he was going to be having a housewarming party soon as he was moving to the city from Jersey and he would call and invite her. She hadn't given him her number, but she had told him she worked for 17. She watched as he walked away. About a month later, she got a call at 17 from a guy saying he had met her on the subway. It was Connor with an invitation to that party he'd been talking about. She said she couldn't go because she was attending a trip in Vail with her father. She admitted that she was trying to impress him at the time, but agreed to instead meet him for a drink another time. On their date, instead of talking about himself constantly, as most men she had encountered in New York had, Connor asked her a string of questions, almost as if he were interviewing her. And... Note here that this is an example of how an abuser is checking if you are a good candidate for their future behaviour, almost a way of grooming you to be a victim. The above example of her not moving away from him on the subway would have been his first check off of his list. 
She left out her family issues and tried to make her childhood seem idyllic and normal. She didn't get a chance to ask him one single question about himself. She got ready to leave, but not before he handed her his resume and said it was so she could check him out and see if next time she wanted to go on a real day with him. The resume moved, move had intrigued her, so she started going on dates with Connor maybe once a week. She told her friend Winnie that he was cute, but there was something nervous under the surface. He picked restaurants so carefully. New York City, how to impress your dates, restaurants. Touristy places that try too hard. And he always paid cash with crisp 20s that looked like he had earned them. He was fun in an offbeat loner kind of way and hung on every word she said. But she couldn't tell her a thing about him. He didn't talk about family or friends. He grew up in Massachusetts and graduated college a year ago, which she found strange as he was eight years younger than her. A friend of hers who knew some guys Connor worked with all said he was a great guy, but they too, they too knew nothing about him. She was bored with him. She was seeing another guy also and was thinking of ending things with Connor. So all of that just screams red flags to me now. Um, trying to impress her with fancy restaurants, trying to put all the focus on her so that he can make it seem like he's super interested when really he's just finding all of this information to use against her later. He is reeling her in but she decided after all of this to give him another shot he began to grow on her and after a particularly steamy dream about him she found herself growing instantly attracted to him after years of sleeping with guys who meant nothing and who could she and who she could barely remember in the morning after consuming alcohol and drugs she wondered what would it be like to make love to someone she truly cared about and trusted so here she is starting to fall for him already and is coming under his spell Around this time, Leslie's father had moved out of the house after giving her mother an ultimatum. Stop drinking or else. She chose alcohol. Connor took her out one night and asked how come she herself didn't drink. She didn't think they were ready for him to hear her own struggle with alcohol. So she said that she hadn't drank since her 18th birthday as her mother's family had a history of alcoholism. His response was, well, then I won't drink either. He said as he liked her so much and clearly alcohol disturbed her so much, he didn't want to do anything to disrespect her. Again, this is all part of him becoming the perfect partner to his victim, to suck her into his fold even more. Later that evening, as they said goodbye, Leslie says, I wanted to be as close as possible to whatever it was inside Connor that made him him and made me feel so damn good when we were together. I was afraid to look at him. He believed in me. So again, she's completely under his spell now. One day on a picnic in Central Park, Connor started to finally open up more. He grew up in a working class neighborhood in Boston. He never met his father. He left when his other, his mother was five months pregnant after punching her in the stomach after a fight about how little money they had. They lived with his grandparents until he was four. Then she married a gas station attendant secretly and her parents were furious as they never trusted this guy. They started a new family and had four kids in five years. His stepfather Wade used to feed his brother and sisters and make Connor sit at the table without any food. He'd make the kids say Connor doesn't get any and ask if Connor if he was hungry. Leslie said it was hard for me to breathe. How could someone do that to a kid? His childhood was even more twisted than mine. Again, this is another tactic to reel her in. I also had the whole abusive childhood story told to me by my abuser and I had pretty much the same reaction as Leslie did. Like no one would ever hurt him when I was around. I was going to take care of him now. 
Connor continued his story, now almost unable to stop talking. He told her how he was the only boy who never made the baseball team as he had no dad to practice with. Instead, after moving back in with his grandparents, he would be helping him with yard work. All of this upset Leslie greatly, but she tried to hide her tears as she didn't want to insult him by feeling sorry for him. Eventually, he had to choose between taking care of his grandparents or going to school. So he's now trying to make himself look like a martyr, like he gave up his own life to help his family. He said he got so lonely spending all of his time with two people in their 70s and not teenagers his own age. He started hanging around a gym while his grandparents were napping and there he was taught martial arts. Eventually, him and the guy who had taught him opened up three of their own gyms and were raking in the money. He eventually sold the business back to him so he could have the money to attend college. His mom and stepdad laughed at him. He had to attend night school first as he hadn't graduated high school, but eventually he got his diploma. His family attended and his mom cried saying, you're our only hope now, Connor. Connor chuckled to Leslie and said, sure, she knows her meal ticket when she sees it. By graduation, he got four offers from Wall Street iBanks and took the best one. He said he also had just sent his application for Harvard Business School. He looked at her sharply as if checking for a hint of ridicule in her eyes. She says, all I could sense that day was that he trusted me. He needed me. That made me need him just as badly. And that is exactly what he wanted, what every abuser wants. They want you to need them and to rely on them so that they can completely consume you with their power and render you helpless. Later that day, as they lay in bed, he told her there was one more thing he had mentioned earlier. His stepfather used to beat him all the time. He put him in hospital once for days. He used to choke him until he passed it out. He sometimes still woke from nightmares with his hands around his throat and still couldn't wear ties too tight. Leslie welled up. Where was his mother while this was happening? She used to get beat up too, he said. Abusers target new people by being self-disclosing like this in order to appear vulnerable and trusting to their targets. And then this false self-disclosure makes the empathetic target want to respond with trust which is exactly what is happening here between Leslie and Connor. Leslie said she'd have given several years of her childhood to make up for everything Connor had survived with no mother or father to protect him. So now she has passed the empathy test. She couldn't find the words to say so she held him for a long time in silence. She said, I discovered an entirely new magical world and didn't care if I never got back to the old one. Again, this is exactly what he wanted. She's completely, completely under his spell. Leslie took Connor to her family home for Easter. Now she wanted him to know everything about her. She told him about her family's history and about their troubles with alcohol. He said, now I'm really starting to understand why you don't drink. She thought... What would Connor think once I dismantled the images of my idyllic childhood? Now that I'd started telling him, he had to know what my family was like behind the screen I painted when we were first dating. Would he understand why I'd created that facade? The fact that she's opening up to him like this shows just how much she trusts him now. He opened up and was honest about his awful childhood. So now she's showing him that her family isn't perfect either. And this is all part of the abuser's plan. They want you to open up and be vulnerable to them. They'll appear to be sympathetic at first, but down the line, all of these little revelations will be used against you. I had this happen to me a lot with my abuser. I would be shocked sometimes at the things that he would bring up. They were 
small details to me, like things that I had told him even years before. But clearly at the time he'd been making mental notes of them and then he would use them whenever he felt the moment had come. Every negative thing about me or that had happened to me was twisted to suit his argument. Things like, see, you've done this before, so clearly it's a pattern with you. I remember one time in particular, I've probably mentioned here before, but he um, brought up something where I guess he, whatever argument we were having and he was trying to say that I was selfish and then he said, oh, it's like that time that you told me your ex said to you that you only ever take care of yourself even if it's to put yourself above other people and like that was something so tiny that I had just mentioned to him probably like four or five years before that and the fact that like he still remembered like he'd made a note of that to use against me later like they are so clever in how they use your own negativities and your own past and things that have happened against you further down the line like it's crazy to me after she finished telling her family story Connor appeared frustrated she thought because of his own childhood betrayals that he'd understand hers but he just seemed irritated and she had no idea why he said I can't believe you grew up in a place like this look at it even the fucking asphalt looks perfect What do they do? Repave it every three months? Does everything have to be perfect here? I feel like I'm in Disneyland. He sounded furious at her, like she had betrayed him by growing up in such such luxury. Such luxury. As if this type of neighbourhood should not have been allowed to coexist in the same universe that let a young boy grow up fatherless among the concrete of Southie. She told him the reason she brought him there and told him that was so he could see that despite the appearances on the outside, the real stuff happens behind closed doors. This is quite chilling to think of when you learn what ends up happening to her behind her own closed doors. Connor turned to her quickly, holding up his finger accusatorily. Don't ever say we grew up the same. You don't understand. You had all this. What did you ever have to fight for? poor baby had to leave to live in a messy house your mother drank too much your father worked too hard you call those problems you don't know anything about what it's like to fight for something you want and everyone tells you you can never have he spit the words out with such venom he was almost in tears so here he's starting to slip a little bit he's completely gaslighting her trying to say that her problems don't matter he wants to be the only one that has problems so she will sympathize with him only and then be under the spell of his sob story she tried to tell him that she wasn't the enemy here she never took all of this for granted she tried to explain that money and a harvard education meant nothing when all she wanted was love from her parents she knew he was wrong She was close to tears now herself. She said it was as if the world all around had shrunk to this globe of crackling, angry space. So suddenly her perfect relationship has shown a large crack and she's completely just startled by it. I remember a similar situation that happened to me about four months into our relationship when I still thought everything was perfect. He was the dream guy. We'd never even so much as bickered. We were on vacation visiting friends in London for a week and we had a few hours to kill while they were at work. So we were on our way somewhere and we had to get there by the tube. I had already checked the map. I knew the exact train. I knew the exact stop where we should get out. But he wanted me to show him on the map 
on the wall of the station for some reason where we were going, what train we were getting. I just assumed he wanted to be a typical guy wanting to know the way, but he just seemed off with me. Like I had done something to piss him off. So I kind of quickly just pointed at the train and the direction on the map, but he wanted it in specific detail. It was like he didn't trust that I knew where we were going. And then he got so snippy with me. We got on the train, I could literally feel the anger coming off of his body. He didn't speak to me the whole way and I just couldn't understand why. I remember feeling really alone and really upset the whole train ride. And then we got to our destination and he just was normal again. It was like the mask had just kind of slipped for a minute. So Connor stayed quiet the rest of the day and on the train back to New York, he just looked out of the window away from her. He left her without a kiss or a backward glance. He didn't call until four days later. They greeted each other and he said, how's my little rich bitch? He laughed, making her too, her laugh too. She said, I loved the way he said my. It made up for being called a bitch. He must have meant it as a term of endearment, right? He agreed to meet her for dinner. She said, the Connor I knew and adored, my Connor was back. The relief and joy I felt as I hung up the phone surprised even me. He has ownership over her now and she doesn't even realise it. She actually quite likes it. She likes that she is his. The fact that he called her a rich bitch without even apologising for or explaining his awful behaviour days ago and she's saying she likes it, it just shows how much control he has already. It may not seem like control because he's making a joke out of it and she's finding it funny, but it most definitely is. And the fact that he did that and he got away with it is proof to him that it is controlling also. He made no effort to say sorry, but she is just so relieved that he's being nice to her that she's willing to let that part slide. He knows what he's doing here and it worked. Her Connor, as she calls him, is not in fact the real Connor, but she doesn't know that yet. Connor ends up giving her a key to his apartment and she stays there almost every night. He told her just that, to come there whenever she liked and stay every night if she wanted. She said so many of her friends' boyfriends had a fear of commitment, but Connor was different. He liked her being there and she couldn't stand to be apart from him. Whenever she left for work, she said it felt wrong to be walking away from him. Again, you can see here how love bombing comes into play. He knows all the right moves to pull and she's falling for all of it. She thinks he's different to other guys because he's showing commitment to her when what he's really doing is making her come more and more under his control. She told her friend Winnie, I love that man. How am I supposed to wait until the day is over? It's like jet fuel being with him. It's like we're one person. I have never felt like this. I feel like the luckiest girl in the world. From the outside looking in, you can clearly see this is spelling alarm bells and red flags everywhere. But when you're on the inside, you don't see it like that. You just assume that this is what every great relationship is like. This is what people mean when they say they found the one. That night, as her and Connor had sex, he carefully placed his hands around her neck. He suddenly opened his eyes and looked right into hers. His hands tightened around her throat. She could feel the excitement raging through his body. She began to choke. She tried to say she couldn't breathe, but she couldn't make a sound. Her eyes started to water. Her body was writhing involuntarily. She started to panic. Then he said three words slowly under his breath. I own you then shut his eyes and squeezed her neck even tighter. 
Then he came, loosened his grip, turned over and fell asleep. Her throat ached. There was a cold, hard feeling of fear deep within her stomach. Her lips were dry and cold and her hands shook. She felt like she was going to throw up. She tried to reason with herself. Maybe it was just kinky sex, harmless. She wrapped herself around him. She thought, if I hugged him hard enough, maybe the cold feeling would go away. Connor received a rejection letter from Harvard Business School. He ripped it to pieces and let it scatter out of the window. He said rich kids half as smart as him get in, but he has to go there so he would apply again next year. He had only told Leslie. The guys on the trading floor would have crucified him. It was the first time she'd seen him angry since their trip to her home. Narcissists don't react well to rejection and they can't stand anyone doing better than themselves. Not long after, while lying in bed, he asked her to marry him. She said a surge of love like a current ran through her. She said yes. She thought, I can help him overcome the years of abuse and neglect and pain. I could help Connor better than any woman on earth. And if I could make him whole, we'd be one person. He'd be mine forever. Here she's doing the classic thing that all victims believe that we can be the one to change them, to make their life better and that ours will be better because theirs is. The following Thursday, Connor said his sublease was about to expire and that they should live together, that they should be together all the time. Leslie agreed, but she hadn't even told her friends yet, especially Winnie, who Connor disliked. When she eventually told her, Winnie asked why so soon, as she'd only known him for six months. She looked like she wanted the same word, but she was holding back. Leslie wished she could see and feel how much she loved Connor. Then she'd understand. Excuse me. The fact that she has held off on telling her friends tells me that she knew deep down that it was very fast, but she was so deeply in love that she didn't want anyone to spoil it for her. Connor disliking Winnie and how Winnie reacted to Leslie tells me that he disliked her because he knew she'd be the one person who would tell it straight to Leslie and risk Leslie questioning him. Abusers don't like it when people can see through through them because it ruins their disguise as the perfect man. I saw this happen with my ex also. <coughs> Excuse me. The one friend of mine that he truly hated was the only one that I had who saw right through him from the start and wasn't afraid to tell me when he did something that wasn't right. I didn't even realize this at the time. I didn't know that they had a hatred for each other, but... She told me she always knew he hated her and she disliked him the minute she met him before she even knew that he was abusing me. Connor said that he would handle finding the right place to move to. Within two weeks, he found them a great apartment. She wanted to tell Winnie, see, he's taking care of me already. This here shows both Connor's control by being the one to find the place and Leslie wanting to prove that her relationship is perfect. Connor also insisted on taking care of all the moving details. To a victim, again, this looks like, oh, what a great guy. He's taking care of everything, so I don't have to. But what he's doing as an abuser, again, is exerting his control. Their first night in the apartment was the happiest of her life. They made dinner together and ate it outside on the balcony. Leslie said her college friend Guy had told her the first year at Harvard Business School wasn't as bad as people say, that he couldn't wait to meet Connor and we'd be happy to talk if he needed help with his application next year. Connor's head jerked up and he put his glass back down on the table. He looked so stunned that Leslie thought 
Something must be happening behind her, so she looked around. With his lips wrapped tightly around his teeth, he said, he thinks you're a slut, Leslie. She was so surprised and she couldn't believe her ears. He's the kind of guy who was a girl in every city waiting for him. And he says he wants to meet me? What a snake. He pushed his chair back aggressively and looked like he wanted to throw and smash the furniture. He stormed inside and slammed the door. Again, narcissists can never take well to people wanting to help them because they believe that they're the best at everything and they more, know more than everybody else. They'll always talk badly of others, even their own friends, if they feel they have more knowledge than them. She followed him inside and said she's not his property and could talk to her friends whenever she wants. That it's not her fault that Guy's at Harvard and he's not. He said, if that's the way you feel, then why don't you leave now? She grabbed her shoes and left the apartment. Another thing abusers will do when you have the audacity to call them out on something is to tell you to leave them. They never say, I'm leaving you. They always say, well, you can just leave me then. Then when you don't leave or when you leave and you come back, it shows to them that you're completely under their power. They know you'll never leave. And when you come back, it tells them that they can treat you however badly they want and you will always come back to them. As Leslie walked, she thought, was Connor scared that they were moving in together? Scared enough that he'd lash out like that? Why hadn't she been calmer? She should have laughed it off, told him she loved him more than any man on earth. She's making excuses for his behaviour and now even blaming herself for overreacting. As she walked around at 11pm, barely dressed, she realised she had nowhere else to go. The thought of going to Winnie's and telling her about the fight filled her with shame. How could she admit that her fiancé had kicked her out because she talked to another man on the phone? She went back to the apartment expecting to find Connor waiting up for her, but he was fast asleep in bed. She couldn't sleep and started to cry. She hoped he'd wake up and put his arms around her and that it was going, say that it was going to be okay, that he was sorry. She woke before him the next day and the first thing he said to her was, God, you kept me up last night. Don't cry like that in our bed if you expect to stay here with me. So he had been awake but was choosing to ignore her while she was crying. She got ready for work and left. She thought about how she had just moved and didn't earn enough money to just get another apartment or a hotel. She didn't want to tell her friends because of her shame. She had nowhere else to go. Everything had to be okay with Connor. He was her new family. She'd never felt so good in her life as she did with him. How could a relationship fall apart in 24 hours? Yesterday, they'd been giggling together. She went over and over the previous night's conversation, trying to see if there was anything she'd missed previously about her mentions of Guy. She hoped to find anything she could to validate Connor's anger. Then she could apologise and it would be over. She deleted Guy's number and asked him not to call her again. So she is so desperate for things to be back on track that she is willing to find anything at all to apologise to him for, even though he is the one who is in the wrong. She's so desperate for things to be okay. He has her mind so twisted already. He made the relationship perfect and seemed like it was he was the perfect Prince Charming. And now he's starting to take it away from her in order to once again exert his control over her. And you can see that the isolation from her friends has already begun. She's already not close to her family. Now she's afraid to tell her friends about her real life and even telling them not to contact her so as not to upset Connor. A few hours later, Connor called her at work at the time he usually did. He acted as if nothing had happened and just told her a story from work. 
Relief washed over her immediately. The fight was over and she didn't ask any questions as to why. Imagine someone having this much control over your emotions that you can't relax until they make it okay. He's the only one who can give her relief from her pain and anxiety, even though he's the one who caused it. It's a complete mindfuck and it can so easily happen. You might listen to this and think, what an idiot, or I would never allow anyone to do that to me, but you're so wrong. You just don't know. You don't even know until you've left the abuser years later that you were so under control. The fight was never mentioned again, but Leslie... excuse me, felt like the apartment was tainted, like it was Connor's apartment and not hers. Even her cat, who had never bothered him before, was suddenly driving him crazy. Then one day he claimed he was allergic. She had to decide between her beloved cat and her fiancé. Her sister said she would adopt the cat. Leslie couldn't imagine that someone she loved was having her make this choice, and because she felt like someone like her would never get rid of a cat for a man. And there's the thing, you never know what you'll do until you're in the situation. The couple continued to have great days as well as the bad. It's important to know that not every day is bad and you end up living for them. You live for the good days, but those good days get less and less frequent the longer you're together. One time they went to visit her parents. For the most part, the trip went well, but one evening Connor seemed upset. He said her mother was a piece of work. She tried to tell him what a druggy slut Leslie had been in high school. She tried to give details, but he wouldn't let her. He said no one should say things like that about their own daughter. Leslie was shocked, but also not surprised, as she was also the woman who had given her the nickname the Washington Whore. Maybe she was jealous and trying to drive Connor away. Leslie went to find her mom. She said, nice boyfriend, you always did like to bring home strays. Her dad found them an hour later and told Connor that Leslie's mother wanted him to apologise to her and that it would be best if he did. Connor told Leslie that her mother was trying to humiliate and degrade them. They packed their bags. Leslie said to her family that Connor wasn't going to apologise for something he hadn't done. They were going to stay at an inn for the rest of the trip. As they left, Leslie didn't feel angry or sad. She felt grown up. Thanks to Connor, she had finally stood up to her mother, the woman she loved and feared more than anyone in the world. So she's seeing him here as setting about positive changes in her life. He is her savior. And this is serving to isolate her even more from her family. Yeah, she should have stood up to her mother and she did. And that is definitely a positive thing. But he wasn't doing that to stand up for Leslie. It was simply another power move. And an abuser never wants to be spoken down to by anybody else, even if it is their partner's mother. A few weeks later, Connor told her he quit his job. He'd had enough of the stress of the job and of New York. He'd been fighting alone his whole life. And now that he'd found her, he wanted the bullets to go over his head for a while. The warmth and trust in his voice made her feel light and swoony. But at the same time, she wanted to shout, are you crazy? Shouldn't we have talked about this? He said his boss made some calls and there was an opening in one of their subsidiaries in Vermont. She thought about how much she loved New York, how half the girls would push her off the Brooklyn Bridge for her job and the men would do the same to Connor for his. Moving would only open up new problems and challenges and scenarios for him. His demons would follow him wherever he went. But she also thought, he needs you. He's much more important than any job or any city. As his lover, his best friend, his soulmate, she had to do what was right for him. 
that was what love was about, wasn't it? So she's falsely thinking that she needs time to think it through as if she has a choice in the matter. But this is clearly something Connor has been thinking about for a while. He had it all planned out. He knew she wouldn't refuse. And now she's going to be isolated in another state away from everyone she knows. And my story is quite similar here. I was moved to New York in a whirlwind before I even had time to think about what I was doing. And I knew no one and I had no one to rely on but him. And he knew that. It was all happening unexpectedly fast. Every woman's magazine warned against being one of those reckless women who gave up everything for a man and got nothing in return. Connor still hadn't even gotten her a ring. So she told him if he wanted her to go with him, he would have to get her a ring and set a date. He said okay, which was exactly what she wanted and needed from him right then. But he said because of him leaving his job, he didn't have the money for a nice ring now. She said they should think about it and they left it at that. She told her boss she was leaving to move to Vermont, where she would work freelance. Her boss told her how much talent she had and how hard she'd worked to get here. She said she knew Leslie loved Connor, but she couldn't sacrifice everything she'd worked for just for a man. Leslie smiled. Connor wasn't just any man. He needed her. She just didn't understand. Again, she's completely blinded by her love for him. She thinks her love is different and no one understands it. She's making excuses to everyone, even to herself, to justify it. A few days later, she told Connor she could take money out of her trust fund to buy a ring. He said that sounded like a plan. During her lunch hour, she walked to a jeweler's and bought her engagement ring. Then she gave it to Connor to give it to her the next weekend. None of it struck her as strange. How he had proposed was so romantic that she didn't care about getting her own ring. She was a realist, unusually mature for her age. That night, she called her family to tell them she was engaged and moving. She thought, how could I say no to someone who had such a terrible life before meeting me? How could anyone understand this? I wanted him to have everything now that he was with me. He would have no reason to leave me ever. It felt wonderful and selfless, like nothing I'd ever felt before. I had so much love in me that I never considered what moving for love would mean, what I might leave behind that could never be found again. On their drive to the new town, they stopped at an Arby's so Leslie could use the restroom. She came back to him, hunched over the table with pieces of crumpled paper in front of him, paper from her bag. He claimed he was looking for lip balm. The paper was a love note from a teenager she had met when she was at the airport at Christmas, telling her she was beautiful, and he had put it in her claim tag on her skis. She had kept it because he was some young sweet boy and it was a cute note that made her feel good. Connor was furious. He told her not to keep shit like that if he wanted to be with her, to throw it away if she wanted to get back in the car with him. She threw it out. They left in silence. They stayed in a motel for a while while they looked for a house. One day she found a ranch house in their budget. She'd never imagined she'd spent her dad's hard-earned money on something as modest and unexciting as this particular house. But after his lifetime of rental apartments and eviction notices, she wanted Connor to have a home. After several weeks of freelancing, she found a couple of small magazine-related jobs. When they had first moved, they had both set up a joint account. Then Connor had, without explanation, left all the bill-paying responsibilities to Leslie. He handed her his paycheck every two weeks, which wasn't much after all of their payments every month. She eventually had to ask her dad for money so that they could buy a car. One day, Connor asked her to go and buy mats for the car. When she came back, he wasn't happy with the one she purchased. Too cheap, he said, kicking them over with his foot. Too thin, too short. And why had she bought brown when the car's interior was black and grey? Connor made her sound like a moron. She got angry and stormed away. 
Connor just laughed at her. Then he said, hey, retard, I'll make a deal with you. Let's never, ever argue about car mats again. I love you. She felt instantly better. Now, this is the second or third time that he's called her a derogatory name and passed it off as a pet name and she's laughed it off thinking it's cute. But really, it's very, very subtle bullying and name calling, but she doesn't see it as that yet. They eventually adopted a Doberman puppy. Leslie had wanted a lab or a golden retriever. She was terrified of Doberman. She didn't want to have a dog that everyone was afraid of, but he insisted. She had no idea how to oppose someone as determined as Connor. She also knew there was no point in suggesting she get her cat back from her sister now that they had a yard. But she grew to love Blue and he became her shadow following her everywhere. One evening, an older neighbour wandered into their yard and told them not to be alarmed if they heard gunshots as he was trying to get rid of groundhogs. Connor told Leslie they should get a gun also. He seemed really excited about it. He even said they had a gun range for employees at his job. She needed to be able to protect herself when he wasn't around with all the hours she spent alone in the house. That Saturday, he came home with two guns, a cold 45 and a Glock. He also said he thought he should get a shotgun. She asked how much they were. They had no money for guns. He said it was a small price to pay for her safety, but he had no idea how disturbing the topic was to her. He kept the Colt 45 under his pillow and the Glock in the glove compartment of their car. He'd often put it in his pocket when they went out for breakfast or walked around the neighbourhood at night. Leslie thought, who is this man I love? One weekend, they drove into Boston to look at their wedding venue. That evening, Connor wanted to go to dinner somewhere, but Leslie said they should just go home as they had no money to eat out anywhere. He gave her a cold stare. She, he gripped the steering wheel with both hands, staring straight ahead. His ominous silence eating away at her. He didn't respond to anything she said. Suddenly he spoke. I don't think I can marry you. After a few minutes, Leslie crawled into the back seat to get away from him, hugging the dog. She cried, thinking, what would she tell her family and friends? That he'd left her after she'd done so much for him. When they got home, he stuck his head in the back seat. Come on, baby, stop crying. It's okay. I love you. She heaved a huge sigh of relief. She was forgiven, but for what? She didn't know. All that mattered was being close to him. Five days before their wedding, an expensive laptop arrived. Connor had said he needed a laptop for his financial management class. A nice laptop would show people at work that he's serious. Again, material things matter so much to narcissists he wants to be seen to have the best of everything and we've seen several examples so far in their story of financial abuse and this is another example leslie told him they couldn't afford it they couldn't even afford to get a washing machine and only put three dollars of gas in their car at a time he'd persuaded her to put it on her amex and expense it as part of her writing business leslie couldn't say no to connor while he showered she tried to get the laptop to work it was complicated and she started to panic as she had to get an article finished soon so they could have money for their honeymoon. In frustration, she slammed her hand on the table and yelled, Shit, you stupid machine. Connor burst into her office, dripping wet. Hunched over the, la the laptop, Leslie froze. He grabbed her shoulder and turned her to face him. He slapped her hard across the face. He grabbed her throat, pushed her up against the wall and tightened his grip. He shook her body back and forth. Don't scream like that, he spit through clenched teeth. With every word, her head hit the wall. She couldn't breathe. My mother screams like that. Don't ever scream like that again. He pushed her to the floor and left. She stayed on the floor until she heard the car leave a while later. 
Once she knew he was gone, she looked up a number for an abuse hotline. Wasn't this what you were supposed to do if your fiancé hit you five days before your wedding? She was shaking all over as she dialed the number. What would she say when someone answered? That it was 7.30am, way too early for this to have happened? That Connor was the only man she'd ever loved this deeply? That he had driven off in their only car? That if it came to a choice between him or her, she didn't know who she'd choose? That she might have bruises on her wedding day? That she was sure he was very, very sorry? Did she tell the voice that although she was scared, she was not surprised? She decided to take a shower to calm down and then call again. But then she made a coffee and walked to the library to finish her article and never called the number again. She didn't answer the phone when Connor called that afternoon. That was her big punishment for him. She left the house purposefully dark when he was due home to scare him into thinking she had left. Because no one hit her ever, right? She pretended she didn't hear him come home. He came into her office and she could smell the fear and panic on him that she was going to vilify him for what he'd done or announce she cancelled the wedding. The dread on his face offered her a thread of hope. If he was afraid, he'd never attack her again, right? She could leave any time. And anyway, he'd just grabbed her throat. He couldn't have hit her. They were getting married. Three days later, when her wedding guests started arriving, she had ten small reddish-brown bruises around her neck. So faint, no one noticed them. I feel like how she describes this incident is very important. It's the first time he's gotten physical in a sort of stereotypical way. The way that we're taught to think of as physical. He hit her, he shook her, he had his hands around her neck. She knows herself that this felt different than before. She could brush aside the choking during sex as simple kinks and getting carried away in the passion of it. But this she knows she can't excuse. But after the initial burst of wanting to directly call a hotline, she talked herself out of it. Maybe it wasn't as bad as she thought. Maybe calling a hotline was a little dramatic. Only for weak women being battered on a daily basis. She wasn't a battered wife, was she? She tried to punish him, as she says, but the punishments don't work like they would with a regular person. They don't feel sorrow. They don't feel empathy. Instead, what they do is serve to spur them on. She starts to justify it and make excuses for him. She tries to convince herself that it was a one-off. Everyone thinks that they would know exactly what to do if this happened to them. They would call the numbers, they'd tell a friend, they'd leave right away. But it's just not so simple. She is completely in love with this man and she has a wedding in five days. What would her family say if she cancelled? No one knows how they would behave until they are in the situation themselves. As the wedding came closer, it was easier than you'd think to avoid what had happened. There was too much to do. The wedding was all that mattered, not the fact that she was marrying a man who had choked her and bashed her head repeatedly into a wall. It was more important that everything she planned fall into place. A fairy tale wedding seemed like insurance against a turbulent marriage. Connor didn't apologise or say a word to acknowledge what had happened. After the rehearsal dinner, Leslie asked her dad if they could have breakfast the next morning early. She was nervous, thinking maybe she'd tell him what had happened if she had enough guts. She thought about what she'd say to him. She pictured him telling her she couldn't possibly marry Connor. She imagined him making an announcement to the wedding guests while she hid in her sister's hotel room crying, but sure it was the right thing to do. So here she's trying desperately to get someone to tell her that what he did was not okay without herself having to admit that deep down this is exactly how she feels about the situation I remember being in this position too but I 
didn't want to admit what was happening to me. I was too ashamed. And I also still loved him enough to not want anybody else to think badly of him. She waited for him for 40 minutes. She cried. Now she needed to tell him. She can't do it alone. On her way out of the lobby, she spotted her dad sitting with some other relatives, a finished breakfast in front of him. He barely even acknowledged her. Suddenly, she couldn't imagine telling him or anyone what had happened. So she sat and had breakfast and pretended everything was normal. This is so heartbreaking to me to think about her here, that she had built herself up to tell her dad, but her dad didn't even care enough to keep his plans with her. If she had had a dad who wasn't selfish and cared enough about his daughter to go and have breakfast with her on her wedding day, like she'd asked him, then maybe she never would have stayed with an abusive man. Maybe she never would have married him. Right before the church, Winnie came and told Leslie that Connor had disappeared. A quiet voice inside her whispered, maybe this is the way out. Then her mother came and told her that her dad had also disappeared. 15 minutes after the ceremony was supposed to start, in walked her dad with Connor behind him. He looked as numb as she felt. Not long after, they were married. They honeymooned in Martha's Vineyard as it was cheap and they could drive their car to the ferry and rent a cottage instead of getting a hotel. They were going to be on a tight budget while there. On their way there, they risked being late due to Connor wanting to stop several times along the way at food stands. He yelled at her, would you just relax and let me enjoy my own honeymoon? She said, if they missed the ferry, they wouldn't be able to get there at all. She said, fuck you, I planned every minute of this honeymoon and I'm not going to let you screw it up. They made the ferry and when they got to the cottage, Leslie couldn't find Connor's suitcase. He said, what suitcase, retard? I thought you packed all my stuff. She was stunned. Why would she? He said, isn't that what a good wife does? There went more money they didn't have. Now they were going to have to buy him a whole new set of clothes for the trip. They met a woman one day who invited them to ride her horses on the beachfront in front of her family's farm. On the drive there, Leslie got lost. Fuck, she yelled. Connor punched her. Her head hit the glass of the window. She started to cry, but she kept driving. The worst part was her lack of surprise. When they arrived, she dried her eyes, dried her eyes and popped a fake smile on her face. There was a red mark on her cheek the size of a fist. But what was she supposed to do? Jump out of the car and tell the stranger that her husband had hit her because she got them lost? At least she knew what he did was wrong. They went on their ride, took beautiful pictures of themselves, like nothing had happened. It just goes to show how far you can go to keep up appearances and how easy it actually is, especially now with social media. Like think about how many pictures you see daily of happy couples declaring their love for each other on their Instagrams and think about how many of them are actually being abused behind closed doors. With one in three women being the statistics, chances are very high. On their way home to Vermont, while Connor slept, Leslie thought about everything. Getting married was stressful. Maybe that was why he did her. He always hated seeing his family. Maybe, maybe it made him have flashbacks from times his stepfather beat him. Was he acting out like the little boy he used to be? And there are money problems. Too much free time in his hands. The unfamiliar surroundings all seemed like plausible excuses. She loved him. He loved her. He didn't mean to hurt her. That made it okay, didn't it? Years later, it seems crazy to think that you used to think like this and make any excuse for your abuser but you really will do anything at the time to justify the abuse 
Not long before they got home, a car aggressively tried to pass them going really fast. The driver started honking. Eventually, she let them pass and they sped away. Connor woke up yelling, what the hell did you do to make those guys so angry at you? Abusers will literally blame you for everything, even things that other people do. He reached down and something red, white and yellow came toward her, hitting her and falling apart. It was the cold remains of the Big Mac he'd had at lunch. Small bits of onion and sauce stuck to her hair, ear and the steering wheel. She left it there. She didn't mention these details when family and friends asked how they enjoyed their honeymoon. Just think about how humiliating and degrading that would be. And also note now how the abuse has escalated and become more frequent since they've gotten married. And this is one of the reasons why I wanted to tell this whole entire story and split it into several parts because the escalation in this story is so important and I think escalation tends to be overlooked anyway from people that don't really understand how abuse works so it's something that I always like to show and describe in these stories that I do every every month um so it's extremely important and definitely why I think you should listen to this whole entire story and make note of how much it gets ramped up and how frequently. One night that summer, Connor pinned her on the futon and held the muzzle of the Colt 45 against her temple. He threatened to pull the trigger. She doesn't remember feeling scared. She didn't believe he would fire the gun, although she knew it was loaded. It left a circular bruise on her for two days. So now it has escalated to death threats. One time my abuser told me he would cripple my legs and it's something I kind of just paid no attention to at the time, kind of brushed it off like every other thing he used to yell at me. But I happened to have it on video when he said it and when I rewatched it a few years ago when I was doing research for this podcast, I got chills. I have no doubt now that he meant it. In October, when he was visiting them, while she was excited to see her, a part of Leslie wanted to hide from her and everyone in her life. She didn't want to lie and say married life was great, even though sometimes it was. Connor wondered, didn't she have anything better to do than drive all the way up there? He wanted Leslie to come and have lunch with him. He was her husband, when he was just some friend. Again, he's trying to isolate her from her friends and is probably worried that she'll say something to Winnie about what's been going on. As Winnie was only staying for a few hours, she wouldn't even see Connor as he was going to be at work. Leslie was grateful for that. He was always insulting Winnie's partner in front of her. She was never sure whether he did it because he was envious, he wanted to push Winnie away, or he knew it drove Leslie crazy. Maybe all of the above. On their way into the house from the garage, he turned and asked if his laundry was done yet. She said no. He blocked the stairway and gave her a look of hatred. He shoved her with both his hands. Get it then, he said, through clenched teeth. She fell halfway down the steps. Instead of coming to see if she was okay, he turned off the basement light. This was clearly retaliation for Winnie coming to visit and her not telling Winnie not to come like Connor had asked. He didn't want to tell her outright that she shouldn't tell her to come, so he did this as punishment instead. 
When Winnie arrived, Leslie's back was stiff from the fall, but at least she didn't have any bruises to cover up. She didn't want to tell her the truth, but she knew if Winnie saw bruises, she couldn't have lied to her. On their way back from lunch, Winnie's car died. Leslie called Connor to pick them up, but by the time he arrived, they had already left in a tow truck. When Winnie had left, Connor, when Winnie had left, Connor picked up Leslie from her job. As soon as she got in the car, he started yelling. He told her to drive. As she drove, he punched the side of her face. She said, are you crazy? I'm driving. She eased the car into the slow lane. He looked at her and smiled. I'll show you crazy, he said, and pulled the keys out of the ignition. The steering wheel locked. She turned on the emergency flashes and applied the brake with caution. Cars whizzed, honking furiously by. She was shaking. He eventually gave her the keys. He said, just drive home. When they got home, she made dinner and she called Winnie to check if she'd made it home. She told her she would drive her car down to Boston to her when it was fixed. When she served dinner, Connor took one bite and brushed the bowl off the table with the back of his hand. He said he couldn't eat this shit as it reminded him of the dinners his mother would make him after his stepfather's kids were finished eating. She went outside alone to eat on the steps, trying to recapture the happiness she had felt for a few hours with Winnie. This is so sad to me. I remember those days when I finally got a part-time job in New York and I loved it so much because it got me out of the house and it got me around people again. I would only work a few times a week and only for a few hours, but they were so joyful that I'd actually be sad when my shift was over and I had to go back to my real life, my unhappy life again. Also, the car incident here... um, also made me think of something I've actually never mentioned on this show before um it's kind of something that I forget about and I guess I don't really like think of it as as abusive even though that's exactly what it was but it wasn't abuse from my abusive relationship this was years and years and years before um so there was this guy this was like fresh out of school like um the summer where we had just left school and everyone was getting jobs for the summer and um you know it's that in between school and college where you're kind of like just want to have the best fun ever um and this guy that I'd gone to school with um he I'd known him like fairly well like we were kind of friends I guess and he had long time had a crush on one of my best friends and everybody knew about this and he had asked me um right before um school let out he was like oh he was opening um his own little business for the summer and he asked if I wanted to work with him just like on kind of reception type thing and I was like yeah of course like I was dying to get a job and just have like you know it wasn't good money or anything but like it was enough that I could like go out several times a week which is all you know you want to do back then um so I was working with him we became really close I was hanging out with him all the time we'd take our lunch breaks together we would hang out together um he still was very much into my friend um and it was getting kind of like later and later in the summer um and there was several things that happened um but uh one day I remember I think like he'd kind of said to me oh like he didn't really have a crush on my friend anymore and he was thinking oh maybe I was thinking that maybe I kind of was crushing on the wrong friend you know it was, it was very heavily hinting that he was kind of into me 
but he never directly came out and said it was like very obvious and I didn't reciprocate those feelings like he was just a friend to me and whatever and um he kind of I think I kind of started pulling back a little bit then at that point because you know I didn't want to lead him on or anything like that so you know I would go to work every day but I would kind of very much be like not hanging out with him after work anymore um and it wasn't just us hanging out together like there would be a bunch of like guys with us and stuff and then he one night he drove me home after like we were all out together and he always had his car and he he didn't really drink and he would kind of be the guy that would drive everybody home and he was dropping everyone off and he would always drop me off last even though like he would have to like go almost towards his house which is really far away is a good like 25 minute drive away from where I lived like he would drop his neighbors home but then I'd still be in the car and then he'd like drive me home before he went home himself which made no sense I should have been the first person to go home and then one night he started you know he we would like he'd want to keep talking when we we're outside my house in the car and I'd be like I just want to go to bed leave me alone it's like 4 a.m um and one night he had told me that he had tried to kill himself and he had this whole elaborate story of how he was in his father's um, garage at home and like he had you know he made it like super dramatic like he had I had the rope in my hand and I had the like noose made and I was just about to do it but my friend walked in the door and he saw me and only for him I wouldn't be here right now like he just made it so dramatic that I was like I just knew I was like this isn't true like this didn't happen like I just felt it in my bones like that this didn't happen and we were literally sitting outside my mom's house for hours but I was sitting there thinking this is bullshit like I know that this isn't true I just knew it wasn't true and I knew how by how he was behaving how he was normal as he normally was I was out with that friend that he said was the one that found him he was completely normal it was like nothing had ever happened um he'd even said at one point that there was marks on his neck and I was like I don't think there's any marks in his neck and also you were telling me there's marks in your neck but you're also saying that you didn't have the rope on and whatever also sorry I should have put a disclaimer beforehand about this I'll write it in the bio because I know this is probably a little heavy subject matter for people um but yeah I just knew it wasn't right and I like I felt I was kind of just kind of going along with it and just like oh yeah mm -hmm, really like you know just talking like that and just being like, okay, I need to go now, but also feeling like I don't want to be that asshole that just leaves and, you know, feels like I'm not being, like, empathising with my friend that's saying that this horrible thing is happening to him. Um, but I just knew. And then it was different things like that that happened, but that was, like, one of the major league ones. And then it was later in the summer and we were... Um, so, you know, we were having, I guess, you know, in America, you call it a prom, we call it a Debs in Ireland. And it was supposed to happen, I think it was in like September or something like that. And I had always kind of been like, oh, like, you know, we had said to each other earlier in the summer, like, if you're, if you don't end up, you know, going with anyone, I don't end up going, let's just go together and we'll just be each other's like dates for, you know, like as you do with friends and stuff. But really like, I just wanted to go to kind of hang out with my own friends. I didn't really care about bringing a date with me. It was just kind of one of those things that you did. And I look back and wish now that I hadn't. Um, but 
Yeah, so that was always the thing, but we'd never discussed it anymore. And this had been months beforehand. And then one day we'd gone for lunch and it was maybe like a 20 minute drive from where the actual business was. And we're having lunch and he was like, oh, so what's... Um, he kind of started talking about this this whole Debs thing and whatever. And I said, oh, like I never told you. Um, so basically the, the weekend before I had bumped into this guy that we'd gone to school with and he had just randomly kind of asked me if I wanted to go with him. I was like, yeah, why not? Like I'd never really thought of him in that sense before, but I was like, why not? Like he's a nice guy, let's go. And like, it's nice that he asked me and like whatever it was. And we kind of started like texting each other and like nothing had happened between us, but like, it was just, you know, one of those things you do when you're, you're 18. Um, and I had told him that and he obviously knew him. We went to school together and he just, I can't even explain, but this look just came over him, his entire body. Like he went dead behind the eyes. He's, whole face went bright red and he just stiffened like he was just stiffened in his chair and he didn't say anything he didn't acknowledge what I just told him and he just like really angrily got up went to the bathroom came back paid the bill and we got in the car and he still hadn't said anything to me and this is what reminded me of 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 it because the story I just told about Leslie and the erratic driving and all of that um this is still one of the most scary like scariest things that's happened to me even when I'm saying it like my hands are kind of shaking because I still kind of can't remember can't believe that that happened to me so we got in the car and we were driving back and he was driving like it was so scary like he his anger was being taken out on the car like he was speeding it was crazy traffic this one road that we were on has like insane traffic and if you've ever driven on an Irish road you'll know um the roads are very like winding around like there's bends in the road and like um they're very narrow and um people drive quite fast too I think something I've realized since I haven't lived there anymore um but he was speeding like crazy. He was overtaking cars like crazy, even though there were trucks like coming towards us, cars coming towards us. Like he was overtaking cars. Every single car around us was like honking at him. He was like really aggressively like slamming the brakes and slamming the accelerator and like um, pulling the gear stick back and forth, like changing gears, like really crazy. Like he was so angry. And I started like, I was quiet first and then I started going, can you please slow down? Can you please slow down? Can you please slow down? Like it was so, I was so terrified. I don't think I've ever been that terrified in my entire life. I really don't think so. And he was just driving like a maniac. I was like, we're going to die. We're going to die. We're going to die. And I was screaming at him to stop. And he was not, he just had that same look in his face. He was staring forward. He was super angry and he was completely ignoring me. And I was texting my friend and she was working a little bit down the street from where uh, we were both working. And I was texting her and I was telling her what was happening. And she was freaking out thinking, oh my God, like this is, this is insane. Like I, like it was, it was just, it was crazy. I still can't believe it happened. Um, and we got back and he didn't say anything to me the rest of the day. And my friend was texting me like, please leave there. Please come over to us. Sit here, we'll get you a drink at the bar. And I just didn't. And again, I feel like even though we weren't in a relationship, it was still 
an abusive relationship it was like an abusive friendship and I still felt like like he had that much control over me that I was like no I won't leave I'm just gonna sit here this is my job and you know like that kind of and I was so shook that that had happened um I can't remember now if I had called my mom to pick me up or if he had just driven me home um I can't imagine I would have wanted to get into the car with him but I think I don't know maybe I'll call my mom to pick me up it's irrelevant now anyway I don't remember um but long story short like he still didn't say anything to me the whole entire time and then the guy um that I've been talking about that I had been texting he messaged me and he's like oh he's like apparently really angry that you're me and you are going to this dance together and he's saying that like I was his friend and I shouldn't have and I was like but I never there was never anything like we're we're never together like nothing's ever happened I've never given him a reason to think that we were ever a couple or like anything was set in stone we were just friends and we worked together and oh it just became this whole thing he was threatening to beat that guy up when he saw him again and like the amount of control like that he was trying to exert over me and I wasn't even in a relationship with him like it was just it's crazy and like I had totally forgotten about that and didn't even consider it as part of this podcast but like it's such a perfect example of it it's a perfect example of like you don't just have to be in a relationship with somebody to be abused and to be under their control it can happen like with your parents with your siblings with your friends like anybody um but yeah sorry I went in a complete ramble there but that just that wasn't really a planned um story that I was going to tell um but it just yeah it's just it was it was just so scary um and I look back and I wish like why did I because I continued to work with him for a while after that um and like a million other things happened that were just so not okay um but I eventually just like literally just stopped answering his messages and his calls and I just stopped going to the job and I stopped speaking to him I still see him every now and again if I'm at home but like I just don't I try to stay away from him. I might give him a hello and that's it. Um, but yeah, um, men are scary sometimes. Not all men, yes, but that's just another example. Um, but yeah, sorry for that tangent. Let me get back to the story. Okay, so um, the next week, Winnie, um, Leslie drove the car back to Winnie after it was fixed and she blurted out, Connor hits me. Just that. She couldn't bear to tell her any details. Winnie gasped. Fucking bastard. Leave him right now. Stay here. Leslie said she couldn't. She loved him. They were married. He didn't mean it. He just didn't know how to deal with his childhood. They were going to see a therapist to deal with it. Winnie tried to understand, but she looked miserable. She said she was just scared for Leslie, that he was sick. He needed help. Leslie could feel Winnie's fear. She said she had to tell someone, but she couldn't leave him. Every other woman had given up on Connor, but she wouldn't. He needed someone who loved him enough to help him. That was her. That's what Winnie couldn't understand, what no one could ever understand. Winnie made her promise to call her the next time it happened and to come to her place any time. I've often thought about how hard it must be to be a friend of someone you know is being abused, 
it's happened to me since my abuse but because I've been through it myself I know how to deal with it um, from a victim's point of view so it makes it a little easier to understand but for someone who's never dealt with abuse before it must be so hard to understand like why your friend just doesn't leave this horrendous person but they just don't understand why it's so hard and I can accept that that must be extremely frustrating for them but it is so important to not get so frustrated that you give up on your friend as a lost cause like she won't listen to my advice so fuck her but that's exactly what they need they need someone to listen and to hear them and understand them and then when they are ready to leave you'd better believe that you were a huge part in helping with that whether you think so or not and it's just knowing for them that someone is there that they can go to when they are ready to leave it's so important so I'm gonna leave it there for part one that was already quite long and to be honest I feel a little shook up after telling um that my own personal story just then um I think I'm gonna I'm gonna think about that and I'm gonna think of some other little things like that from the time because I think that might be helpful to see things from like a friendship or um you know any other type of relationship that's not as a couple um to see that kind of um version I guess of abuse too um so yeah maybe I'll talk about that a little more um right now I'm gonna go and eat some food and just watch something funny on tv just to kind of shake that off um again you know it's I'll be honest about it like yeah I've been out of my abusive relationship for almost seven years now that guy that I mentioned earlier that I was friends with I this all happened almost 20 years ago and like to think that that just still affected me and I've told that story countless times to people I know um but that obviously still has some type of effect on me now um so it just goes to show that you know you can leave but it hangs around you know you're still you still feel it um but yeah I'm not gonna end on a negative note um it's all good I'll be fine I can get through it everything's great um apart from this cough I actually didn't cough that much which I'm really surprised about um I think I just did it twice so maybe I'm getting better here's hoping so yeah I hope you guys have a great week um I'll be back next week with part two please stick around this story is so 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 important and have a great one and I will 